I'm not even sure if sponsoring your own podcast is a thing, but we're going to give it a go for the remainder of this series because She Can, She Did has just launched the UK's first ever benefits programme curated for and by self-employed women in the UK. And so I wanted to use this opportunity to tell you all a little bit about it. The new She Can, She Did Benefits programme provides all self-employed women, female founders and freelancers with access to the health and financial benefits that come hand in hand with a corporate career, like pensions, health insurance, gym memberships, eye care, etc, etc, plus a whole host of additional fashion, beauty, well-being, parenthood and lifestyle incentives too, with over 60 plus brands on board and counting, including the likes of Pure Gym, Hiscox, Penfold and Vision. Express on the more traditional benefits front, to the likes of Esper, Bloom and Wild, Higher Street, to Hello Fresh and Oh Mama on the ultimate rewards front. For just £5.99 per month, you will gain access to a whole host of exclusive benefits and rewards to support both your business and your life, which, let's face it, will become all the more important as we all try and navigate the uncertainty that the coming months present. Plus, all members benefit from weekly online events with industry experts at no extra cost too, along with many, many more perks of the programme. Visit shecanshedid.com for more details if you're interested, or of course, feel free to just click on the link in this episode's show notes. I feel like Cheryl when I say the next bit, but here goes. She can, she did. Your resilience rewarded. everybody and welcome back to the She Can She Did podcast aka the podcast that shares the honest realities of what female founders in the UK push through behind the scenes what's and all of course to not just launch but to run grow and sustain their businesses to date if we haven't met yet I'm Fee and I'm the founder of She Can She Did slash the one asking the questions throughout this chat Now, I won't lie, I'm inspired by absolutely every single woman that I've interviewed on this podcast, but there are some stories that stand out, and today's chat with Anna Hushlack is one of them. As the co-founder of Furley, the audio guide to mindful sex that is on a mission to radically transform your relationship with sex, how you think about it and how you have it, that is, Anna sat down to chat with me a few weeks back about the evolution of hers and co-founder Billy's business journey so far. As a trigger warning, we speak about both Anna and Billy's shared history of sexual assault at various points throughout this conversation, so please do keep that in mind. But she's one incredibly strong woman, they both are in fact, and I hope that you find their story to be as empowering, inspiring and motivating as I did. I mean... Anna, in general, just jumping in, I was at a conference last, I think it was October, and it was run by the BBC, and it was all focused on women, and there was an amazing woman, I'm sure you've probably heard of, called Erica Lust, that did a big talk on porn, and she does so much about women, and like putting women's like needs, I suppose, at the forefront of the kind of conversation about sex, and just bringing it to the fore. And I remember just me and the girls that were with me, we were just kind of so inspired by everything she was saying. It was just like, why is she not everywhere? Every woman needs to hear this woman speak. And then when your email came through about Furley, it was just like a no brainer. So genuinely, like I was just saying before we turn the mics on, I'm really looking forward to this conversation. So in your own words, what is Furley all about 
and we will go from there. Amazing. And thanks so much for having us. It's such a treat and such a pleasure as well. So also very excited to have the chat. Furley is a audio app that draws on mindfulness and cognitive therapy to empower women and folks with vulvas to have healthy, pleasurable and confident sex. So the kind of one liner, if you would, is it's an audio guide to mindful sex and it's all around supporting and empowering individuals to improve their sexual well-being. Which is just amazing. I mean, there's a statement on the website that says you're on a mission to radically transform our relationship with sex. So I feel like every listener right now is like, tell us more. Tune it in, tune it in. (laughs) But in general, where did this idea come from? Because you obviously co-founded it with Billy as well. So what led you and Billy to launch this? Because it's one of those things that just seems like such a, how has this not been done before? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because when you think about it, it seems so obvious, but it definitely has not been obvious to others. And I think just definitely the space itself is still so taboo. So I think that whilst that's changing, it's been a journey in and of itself. I'd say for both Billy and I, we have different journeys to that. And I'm happy to kind of share both of our experiences with that and, and speak for her on it. So for me, I spent the last 12 years hopping back and forth between academia and advocacy in the nonprofit sector. And during that time, there's a few things that came up. One was I kept working with marginalized communities and particularly women and seeing the profound gender inequalities. And and that varies from, you know, sexual violence and stuff like corrective rape in South Africa and Honduras to what I would say would be kind of, quote, more subtle forms of gender inequality and sexism, which is exclusion from women in science, exclusion from women in business. And so I think I've always been interested in thinking through all the different angles towards gender equality and how we can be part of this movement. So that was what kind of prompted an interest in the space was just living in these different countries and my own experiences as well with everyday sexism. And then I think for Bill's kind of jumping back and forth. So Bill's trained as a health coach, so she's always been interested in health and well-being. And then in her earlier companies, she was sexually assaulted at work. And that really took a toll on her mental well-being and her sense of self. And it led to quite a deep depression where she had to reevaluate her own idea and her own sexuality and how the story she's been told and the models she's lived in and how that really influences her relationship to sex. Similarly, for me, and as a trigger warning here, I was raped when I was a teenager and it didn't, yeah, it didn't take place in the way, you know, the kind of messages or stories were told in which that looks like and I think that definitely influenced my relationship to myself and to sex. Sex was kind of something you did or something that was done to you. It's not something you feel, it's not something you experience and Mm -hmm. it also made me think about the way in which I relate to my partners and led to a stream of very toxic relationships that really pushed me to kind of reevaluate my own sexual identity. So I think, yeah, there was personal reasons to it. And then both Billy and I then were accepted onto a business builder called Zinc. And they are taking people from different backgrounds, generally products and science, business and tech, and then throwing them in together with a mission to try and solve. So our mission was how we can use technology to improve the mental and emotional health of women and girls in the developing world. That's where Bills and I actually met. And it was, it was really amazing because I think it was an interesting opportunity to be simultaneously building a team and building a business and then having six months to do it. Mm. So it was a whirlwind to say the least, but definitely one of the things we resonated with was whilst looking at mental and emotional health, a lot of the speakers we had in or the businesses other people were working on 
were phenomenal kind of topics in and of themselves, but no one spoke about sex. And based on our own experiences with that, as well as our own passions for gender equality, Bill's also volunteered for an organization that was supporting women who've been through sexual violence in the Congo. So I think for us, it was, how is this not being talked about? How is this not being included in here? And yeah, we just very quickly hit it off and both felt very passionately about the area. And then it's so obvious how massive a problem this is and how common it actually is and how little we actually do focus on sexual well-being and, and how much so many people do struggle with sex. So we jumped in and we've been on the journey together ever since, really. That's absolutely incredible. Just to going back a few steps, you obviously said mm. that you both met on the Zinc, I guess it's like some kind of incubator course. Yeah, exactly. So what led you to I'm always interested in the baby steps mm. and that's like a monumental part of the story. So yeah. <laughs> so what led you to both go for that? And in terms of like the application and stuff, how accessible is it for anyone listening, those kind of courses? So it's definitely accessible to anyone listening. I would say it's quite competitive. So they only take about 55 applicants. Mm -hmm. But I think there's definitely, certainly on their end, it's an amazing team and it's amazing people behind the scenes that are really focused on also making that as accessible and diverse as possible. So yeah, it's open to anyone who's interested. But yeah, I think making sure that you take the time to put the application in and take it seriously will definitely be an advantage to doing that. I'd say our journeys towards it were slightly different. So Bill's, she was the first employee at quite a few startups. She really, really thrives in that early stage environment. And for her, this was especially kind of coming off the back of previous careers and the transitioning away from the company she'd been working at when she experienced the sexual assault, as well as the interest in, in health and well-being. This was, you know, the perfect fit for her. So she definitely jumped right in and applied and you know, phenomenal skill set. So obviously got it. Yeah. For me, I was actually recruited by them when I was finishing my PhD. And I think that came at the perfect time. I think for me, I'd kind of stuck with academia because I didn't know what else to do. It was yeah, one of those yeah. things that I was good at. And I was just like, shit, I don't know what I'm doing with my life. So I'll just <laughs> go back to school. But yeah, I think the baby steps were definitely for me, it was kind of reevaluating yeah, do I actually want to do this? Does it give me that meaning, that sense of purpose? I actually had a really bad experience with Oxford doing my PhD and one that was actually quite, I would say, unsupportive, quite negative, quite jarring. So there was definitely a bit of a disillusionment with academia beyond mm. just being frustrated with the pace. So I think it was definitely just both for Billy and I, it was taking a moment to pause and actually say, what do we want? And if we can't answer that, that's okay. But what do we not want? And I think both for her and for I, the kind of previous experiences we had, the previous career trajectories we were on, weren't that. And we definitely gravitated towards one that allowed us to be mission focused, one that allowed us to really have autonomy, one that allowed us to really move at a pace that's, you know, quite fast, one that allows us to have very real world impact. And that led us to looking at sync. And yeah, I think there's definitely lots of opportunities to get into similar type incubators or business builders programs. And it's just kind of a matter of, I guess, doing that reevaluation, taking that pause and really just throwing yourself in. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, how old were you at this point then when you both got onto Zinc? So I would, how old am I now? <laughs> I would have been 28 or 29 yeah. and Billy would have been 26, I think. Amazing. But I'm always interested in like the early days in general. So how quickly did the idea gain momentum and how do you know, I suppose, what to prioritize to get this app off the ground because having had a look at it you know you've got all of these different experts coming together and mm. it's such a 
like you said, there's a lot of taboo around the topic of sex in general. So if you're going to come out with a statement like radically transforming your relationship with sex and having <laughs> heard about your background just from the way of talking, I'm sure that that wasn't a responsibility you took lightly. There was a lot of research going into that. So how on earth did you know where to start to kind of get this thing together to a product that you were happy to put out there in the world? Yeah, I think there's a few steps to it. First and foremost, there's the work you do on yourself while you're taking the steps to create a business. And I think then there's the work you actually do on the business. And the two are often quite interlaced and hard to separate. So I think from a product perspective and getting it out there, fundamentally, the most important aspect for us was making sure that it's human-centered and that it's empathy-driven. So, you know, in a nutshell, that means really understanding the problem we're trying to solve and problems really that we're trying to solve and the experiences of the communities we're working with. So the way in which we approach that, and that's what happens when you also have a researcher on the team, everything <laughs> came from a research first focus. So the absolute kind of, yeah, I guess starting point was consuming everything we absolutely could consume on the topic. So, you know, doing interviews, running workshops, doing surveys, doing literature reviews, doing market research, and then also trying to figure out how to actually action that. So at the time it was staying, and I think this is the interesting thing, especially if it's a tech product, people think about the tech first, whereas for us, it was like, how can we do all of this with the least amount of tech? How can we not build anything? How can we not engineer anything? How can we not develop anything? And how can we actually just test very low fidelity, very hacked together ideas and just really, really understand the problems? So, you know, that meant everything from we ran like a museum of curiosities where we had people listening to whale sounds to see how they felt about audio. We had folks lying in dark rooms on yoga mats with blankets over them while I read a script to see how they felt about like <laughs> listening to instructions and doing like mindful touch. So I think that the very first thing for us was and has always been is focus on the problem, know the problem, and really focus on the lived and everyday experiences, the people that you're working with and the problems you're trying to solve and, and they're trying to solve. So I would say that was definitely the kind of starting point was just testing, testing, testing. From there, it was then also, I think around that is putting structure to our days. I think it can be really overwhelming and it can be really kind of intimidating on where do I start and how do I go about this? I think the biggest thing for us was that almost like no decisions are actually worse than a bad decision. A bad decision you can learn from, but if you don't make any decisions, you end up being stuck. So we surrounded ourselves by people who could help us make those decisions. And then we also just challenged ourselves to keep making them as well. Always keeping the problem first, but really focusing on, on just keeping momentum there and keeping movement rather than trying to have everything be perfect or trying to be able to answer everything right away. It was more a sense of like, how do we just do this? How do we just test, do, test, do, and, and learn as we go? Yeah, absolutely. I'd say that's the main bit. <laughs> yeah, there's quite a chunk there. I mean, it's amazing. And it's so true that kind of rolling with the momentum. Even the testing bit, though, before the tech came along, because I know that you obviously secured a pre-seed round. Mm -hmm. Was it early this year that went through? Or was it uh, back? No, it was it's actually within, we got offered a term sheet within six minutes of Billy doing her final pitch. So it was, oh it was a bit gosh. of a whirlwind. Wow. Yeah. It took a little while to actually sign off on everything just because we were navigating some, one of our earlier co-founders decided to leave the team. 
and actually switched careers in the middle of it. So it took some time to get everything signed off on and whatnot. But yeah, the, the fundraise itself actually was six minutes to a term sheet, which was pretty cool. And I think pretty impressive and testament to Billy's storytelling. Oh, absolutely. Like, I'm actually just sat here, my jaw just dropped a little bit. <laughs> but in general, though, like, obviously, pre that funding round, I'm just really curious to know, obviously, the, all the testing that you did there before the tech came along, like, mm. even things like getting people in a room and playing whale sounds, you know, all of that, <laughs> like, that's time, that's energy. How did you fund all of this kind of research in the beginning before the funding came in? So that's where I think we were lucky because we were on the Zinc program. So with Zinc, we were given, you know, kind of a stipend or bursary, if you would. Amazing. Which helped to support that. It was in London and it wasn't much. So it was still pretty tight. (laughs) But I think that actually is interesting because there's something to be said. And I was actually speaking to my brother about this, who's also an entrepreneur. And one of the things we were talking about is in some ways not having money is a really good thing and not being able to have that investment and that funding and that support is as much as it doesn't feel it is actually really powerful because it forces you to prioritize. So mm. it, it really makes you cut anything that's unnecessary and it means that you can't be lazy. So I think there is something to be said about not that we get lazy when we get funding coming in, but it gives you a bit more of a buffer. It gives you a bit more time. Whereas when you don't have it and you're trying to literally make ends meet, you know, there was a few months and again, we did have that stipend, but there was a few months where at the end of the month, it was like, cool, it's going to be beans on toast because not much in the bank account. But it it really forced us to take things seriously and to kind of really dive in and really be creative and innovative and hacky with how we got things done, which is one of the big reasons why we avoided any of the tech stuff, because it was just purely a thing of this takes time, this takes money, this takes capacity, and actually we can't really afford it at the moment. So how do we keep it as scrappy as we can? Mm. So I think, again, obviously having it, there's a certain point where you need to pay your rent and, and that's definitely handy. But there is something to be said about... Yeah, the prioritization or the focus or the hustle that comes with uncertainty and I think the pressure that comes from not having that. Yeah, it makes you hungry, right? Like yeah, just, You've exactly. got no choice but to kind of make it work. I completely agree. When did it become apparent, though, that you were going to go for funding? Like, what was it? How put together was the product before you took it to the investors? Was it just still at the research stage? Like, I suppose, what was your initial aim for the funding? And yeah, when did you decide, okay, that's our next step? So I think it was definitely always an aim for us. I would say both Billy and I were and are very ambitious. And it's interesting because I think often ambition can be something that, particularly for women, get shied away from. And that was something that we really resonated from the very beginning of this isn't you know, just a nice side project yeah, or yeah. nice to have for us. This is something that we are going to commit the next X amount of years of our life to. Yeah. So, and I there's think, nothing wrong with that. That's super impressive. Yeah. <laughs> and I think it was very clear for us. I think that's part of the reason our partnership from the very beginning worked because we were so aligned in terms of we want to have a global reach and this mission is critical and you know nothing's going to stop us from achieving it. So I think for us, the logical step with that was funding. That being said, there's obviously so many different ways of getting funding. I think for the trajectory that we wanted to go on, that's where institutional investment came in because it does really, I mean, it comes with pressure. There's Mm. certain expectations and there's certain targets you have to hit with that money. So I think that was a way for holding us accountable. And we both really, we really aligned with that. So yeah, I think very early on, that was, yeah, just the the logical next step. 
we were lucky because through Zinc, we had access to investors that we wouldn't necessarily have access to otherwise. I think one of the big things about doing that is being part of those communities or part of those programs. There's obviously trade-offs in that. You give away a little bit of your company, but I think the return on that and the connections and the, I don't know, slingshotting, if you would, that comes from it is huge. So we, through Zinc, were introduced to some really phenomenal investors and some really phenomenal people who also then connected us to more. And I think that definitely helped us get the funding and, and made that process much quicker. Yeah. And then another thing we were doing was pitching really regularly. And this is something Billy still does. So just getting ourselves out there. So it was telling that story all the time to as many people as we could. So by the time we ended up actually asking for money, they already knew who we were. And I think that almost ongoing active due diligence took place because they'd been kind of following our journey and they'd known our journey over time. So when it came to the actual like pitch itself, there wasn't a lot of background they had to do. They were already kind of well familiar with what we were doing and who we were. That's amazing. Is that just a case yeah. of like, you know, sending people emails, taking them out for coffee, calling? Like, how did you get in front of them? Definitely. I mean, I would say Billy, one of her super strengths is that she is a hustler. <laughs> so I think part of that was, you know, whilst I would go and be focusing a lot on the research and really focusing on understanding the problem space and, and thinking about how we build the product, Bill's was like, how do I make sure that I create a business that enables us to build the product? I just go out and I hustle. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I think emailing coffees, newsletters was another one we had set up that we were sending out, you know, photos of the things we were working on and our workshops and silly gifts to make it stand out from like a typical formal cold call email you would get. So it was thinking around how do we again get creative with the story we're telling and how do we make sure that we stand out as a company from, you know, the other hundreds of emails that investors are likely to get. And I also think there was something around keeping relationships warm, even though we weren't fundraising. So it was, again, you know, being very clear, we're not, we're not fundraising at the moment, but we want to understand more about your firm or we're interested in this space or we'd love to know advice on how these things work. So it was also approaching it much more through the lens of building a relationship rather than actually asking for money. Mm. And then I think when it came to then asking for money, that relationship and those relationships were already in place because of the work that Billy did to get us there. I mean, getting a term sheet in six minutes is testament to that, right? <laughs> it speaks for itself. That's incredible. You obviously like, launched last July. How quickly did things start to kind of pick up? Because like we said, it's a topic that what woman's not going to be interested in this. So <laughs> yeah, talk me through, I guess, how you went about getting the word out there in terms of the PR and how quickly things started to gain speed yeah yeah you know it's interesting so we were at around 40,000 users and 97% of that has come through organic traffic so we actually haven't up until recently done any paid with the exception of a couple tests here and there we actually haven't done any paid marketing so I think that's where it's been really interesting because it's again the power of community and the power of the topic we're working on Mm. It's been word of mouth. It's been practitioners who have supported the work we're doing and are recommending it to patients and to clients. It's been through friends or family members that are saying, hey, I came across this. I think that this might be interesting. I think it might be relevant for you. It's you know community members that we've had that have yeah shared experiences like this is the first time I've been able to have sex without having a panic attack. This has literally changed my life. Mm. I want to share it with everybody I know. So I think for us, that's been a really phenomenal privilege. 
and has definitely created like a very strong sense of responsibility and a duty of care to our community. Again, also because it's such an important topic to us and it's such a personal topic to us and we have our own connection to it. But yeah, in terms of how it's grown, I think that goes back to really focusing on, on very clear problems. So I think offering a solution to a problem that is fundamentally universal and doing it in a way where you yourselves are also a bit of a work in progress and are going through it with your community and navigating it with your community is pretty powerful. So yeah, it's definitely probably not the, I should say it's probably an exception <laughs> compared to a lot of other businesses out there. But I think there is a way of, again, really being able to kind of replicate that organic growth through understanding the problem and through holding yourselves accountable to your community and through committing to your community and to also being real with them. You know, and I mm. think that's definitely something that's really important to us is, is really very much like, you know, living authentically and fessing up when we get things wrong and saying that we're working on this and we were kind of experimenting and asking our community for help as well. And so I think that's been the way in which we've kind of gained momentum and we've grown has been fundamentally through our connection to our community and, and through their support of what we do, which is, you know, humbling and it's pretty, it makes us very grateful for them. Yeah, no, definitely. Picking up on that, in terms of challenges, given that it is such a personal topic for you and Billy as well, how have you navigated that side of it? <laughs> There's so much pressure in general running a business and it comes with a whole set of challenges, but to be tied so intimately, I suppose, to what you're working on, how have you, I guess, managed that? Well, both of you, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a few things. So one, it's tough. It's so interesting. I don't know if it was... I think it might have been Steve Jobs. There was a conversation with someone around to start a business, you literally need to be crazy. <laughs> you know, it's not something you start because it's easy. It's not something you start because suddenly you're going to have this amazing Silicon Valley lifestyle where you're like living in luxury. It's not something you start because it's great for your relationships. <laughs> for most people, it's a horrible idea. And that's okay. But I think then you have that community of people who or so driven by what they do, or so committed to it, or who don't just, you know, like, quote, fit in, in in a more conventional lifestyle. And it's kind of about finding, not even finding their own tribe, it's about creating their own tribe. So I think with that in mind, it's going into it being very aware that you are going to have some serious challenges. And, and that's across everything from the business itself to the relationships to your own health and well-being. And that's just part of the package. I think specifically for us, there was a few ones that came up. So definitely for me, when I came into it, I really struggled with imposter syndrome. And this is something I think I've struggled with beyond just starting a business. I think there's a history of perfectionism. There's a history of not necessarily feeling good enough. There's a history of not being aware of how to define success on my terms. So mm -hmm. I think going into running a business, I definitely felt very... I'm a state self-conscious about not having done an MBA or not having run a company before or doing it for the first time. And I also think, interestingly enough, Billy and I also came up against challenges that were externally imposed on us around this. So being two women talking about sex, we had so much feedback and also from people who we looked to as advisors and who were kind of in our inner circles around good luck with that. You yeah. know, make sure you have a guy on the team because you're never going to get funding as two women. Maybe you should talk about porn because it's more lucrative. Is this actually a real problem? You know, is sex a big deal for women? Are women a big enough market? Like all these issues like that, or the amount of times where we've also then had 
everything from voice actors to media agencies to investment, filtering our stories, filtering the things we do because they're uncomfortable, for example, with you know, a history of sexual assault, or they're uncomfortable with talking about female dysfunction and sexual difficulties. So I think already there was, you know, some obstacles kind of set up that we had to navigate. And I think one of the biggest challenges was believing in ourselves and and tackling that imposter syndrome and really navigating, basically studying our own criteria for what success is and what isn't and really being clear on what our values are and what they aren't and using those to build our own confidence, but also using those to make decisions around who we want to work with, who we don't want to work with what we're willing to compromise on, what we're not willing to compromise, and having that almost like an ethical and moral responsibility and a duty of care to our community so we never cut corners and we make sure that regardless of the challenges that come up, we're fundamentally committed to the cause that we're trying to tackle. That side of things was wrapped up in one. (laughs) And then I think there's also the bigger challenges of like, or not necessarily bigger, the everyday challenges of like building a team. So for example, (laughs) Billy and I, we didn't know each other when we started. And we could not be more different in every single way. And actually, that's one of the most powerful aspects, I would say, of our relationship, both as co-founders and as best friends, is that it's so fundamentally complementary, but it's taken work to get us to a place where it's complementary. You know, there's things that she does that piss me off and there's things that (laughs) I do that piss her off. And it's through and through the most important relationship that I have. And so also figuring out how to build a team whether you're a sole founder and that's, that's other people are coming on or whether you're co-founders and that's the people that you are going to be living and breathing with for the next X amount of years of your life. It's hard. It's, it's navigating those dynamics and really developing the tools to have in place so that when things go wrong and those challenges crop up, which they inevitably will, you're able to get through that with that team and, and with those people by your side. And it's like ride or die kind of a thing. And yeah, I think, absolutely. yeah, that's been definitely a side of it as well is actually building oneself, then building that core co-founder relationship or the relationship with those early first hires and then building the broader team. And then also getting them all online to work in, in our case, a space that was considerably taboo and already had some kind of external forces working against it. Mm, yeah, I mean, there's so much I want to unpick there. <laughs> I want to go back to what you said about the cynical comments mm-hmm. to female founders, talk about porn, like blah, 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 all of those comments. I've literally just, she can she did just done a campaign about all of the cynicism that a lot of female founders face when they say they're running a business or they're going to launch a business. And it doesn't surprise me one bit that the two of you received those comments. So for anyone listening, when you were met with those kind of comments face to face, how did you both handle them and what's your advice, even if you didn't necessarily handle it in the way that you wish you had in hindsight, what is your advice to anyone listening that does get faced with similar comments, I suppose? I mean, the most immediate thing that comes to mind is use it. So I think for us, and we both probably handle them differently, but also similarly, again, because we're so opposite, but so aligned. <laughs> I think it's a thing of take it as momentum. You know, for us, it was, you're going to tell me I can't, I'm going to tell you I can You know, you're going to tell me it's not going to work. I'm going to show you it will. And then it gets to a point also where it's like, it's not about you anymore. I'm doing this not because of what you think about what you tell me I can or can't do about what we're capable of. I'm doing it because it needs to be done. And it's critical in our case, you know, it's a social mission that's critical to everything that we stand for and everything that we do. So whether you're on board or not doesn't really matter. But I think the kind of more practical advice is taken in stride, but also feel comfortable calling out. For example, with the BLM movement and thinking about BIPOC communities, 
one of the things that came up for us was how are our investors doing this and what are their commitments and what are they doing to improve? And so one of the things we did was we called them out on it. And, you know, we're very lucky that our investors are active in this space and are, are thinking about it. But I think it's things when it comes to any type of discrimination, whether that's racism, whether that's sexism. And I think, you know, for women from BIPOC communities, that's a whole other level of resilience that's required because you know, they face even more discrimination than mm. you know, I as a white woman does. But I think it's about knowing your values and sticking clear to them. And when it's the little kind of offhand remarks, either in our case, it was taking it in stride and saying like, okay, you think so? Like, let me show you how you're wrong. And then from there, it almost got to a point of, I don't even need to show you how you're wrong anymore because I believe in what we're doing and I'm not doing it for you. So let me actually use that momentum to just keep on doing this because it's so much bigger than you are. Absolutely. Yeah, which I think was... It was a powerful transition to get to. And, and I think definitely to also be able to say we turned down money from one VC because they just weren't aligned with us value wise. And it mm. was a thing of much more the porn angle because porn's lucrative and there's nothing wrong with porn, but it's not the mission we're trying to solve. And it, it was a thing of saying, actually, like value wise, you're not quite the right fit for us. And that's OK. Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. I, like, I, I just love everything that you just said there. <laughs> I do want to come back onto the inclusivity topic in a minute, because again, I'm super interested in that. But the second point you made about the team and the kind of you and Billy and like the complementing mm. skill sets, I'm really interested in how it's evolved since you met, because it's something that comes up in conversations so much when there's co-founders and then when people don't have co-founders, they're questioning, do I need one, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that's a fear sometimes is that if it goes wrong. So how did you make it work? And I suppose, how have you decided who does what? <laughs> I mean, the deciding who does what is basically like, it was just the two of us for a while. And so it was like, cool, it just needs to get done. So it doesn't really matter whose role it is. Like, let's just make sure that, that it gets done. Otherwise the business doesn't survive. So early on, that was more of a, anybody who can do it, just get it done. That's since evolved. But going back to the first question around sole founder versus co-founder, I mean, I can only speak to having a co-founder as I've never been a sole founder. But in my experience, I could absolutely not imagine doing it without Billy. And I would say it's not just without a co-founder, it's specifically without Billy. And I think, again, that's because we have been very committed to investing in our own relationship, knowing that we do see the world in such fundamentally different ways and have very, very different ways of working. And I think one of the interesting things, we were actually recently asked around, you know, do we think of being co-founders like being in a marriage? And that was a whole <laughs> other question because for me personally, I'm not sure that I believe in marriage. And then there's like the question around emotional labor and, and all that stuff. So all of that aside, but thinking about <laughs> the idea of being in a very long-term committed relationship where you're working to build something together. It's like any relationship, it takes work. And I think often we, and certainly in our instance, we've been really committed to working on it from the very beginning. But I think we also made a decision very early on to have a coach. And for us, that has been, I'd say, one of the best investments we've made because it's taught us to have all the tools we need to have with one another so that when things go wrong, we've already got the skill set there to tackle it rather than having to be in a position where we disagree on something or we've pissed each other off and then we're trying to grapple with how to solve it. We can go into it saying, okay, I know that this is how she approaches things. I know this is how she works. I know how this is how she operates. So where do I meet her halfway? Or how do I flex? For us, it's all about flexing to one another. Mm. Yeah, so I think like really actionable steps 
that we often forget about in co-founder relationships are like, you know, you don't have to be best friends. In our instance, we've turned out to be best friends as well, which comes with pros and cons, but it's making room for that relationship outside of the business. So it's like going for dinner with each other. We used to go climbing together. You know, we went wakeboarding together. We've been whitewater rafting together. We go cycling together. We go running together. It's like the dream. <laughs> yeah, I mean, a little bit more difficult with long distance in COVID, but it's figuring <laughs> out like actually just spending time with each other and not talking about work. Yeah. And really focusing on also knowing what's going on in that person's life and where mm -hmm. they're at and, and kind of getting a temperature check. So I think that's one thing that becomes really easy to forget to do. And I think another one that's really important for us has been around establishing really clear ways of contracting and consultation. Bills is somebody who's incredibly effective and she gets super restless if she's not getting shit done. So I think very early on for her, we discovered that it's about efficiency and effectiveness. Whereas for me, I'm somebody who tends to gravitate towards social harmony or shared participation or team dynamics. So I think that was really interesting because when we first started working together, there was things where I would feel like social harmony or team dynamics was being compromised because it was she was just making decisions and getting shit done, where she would feel that I was slowing the decision making down because I was focusing on, we need consultation and we need to like sit down and discuss this and we need mm. to all be in alignment. And so I think things like that of knowing your defaults or your presets, as well as having somebody and developing trust in a relationship where you can show each other one another's blind spots. So I think this was really interesting. I'd say Billy is a mirror for me and I'm a mirror for her. And it's an ability to say, hey, I'm just going to flag this. This is what I've noticed. Feedback doesn't necessarily have to be good or bad. It's a gift. Do with it as you would. And she's great at this and I've gotten better at it. And creating a space where we don't take it personally because there's enough trust in the relationship to know that this is about a genuine desire to improve the relationship and to prove one another and to improve the business. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, establishing that as early as you can. And you know, if you don't have a co-founder, then I think it's about establishing that with mentors or advisors or you know, your first hires and really investing in the relationships. I think that to me is the single most important thing. So uh, yeah, I guess the two things, one would be know the problem. And the second one would be invest in the critical relationships and see that as an as investment, even mm. though it might feel like a waste of time sometime in the long run they are like the single most important things you'll do. Absolutely. And I think this is why I always ask the kind of questions when it comes to co-founders, because I think it's so easy to look at the two of you. And like you said, you know, you're best friends now as well. And I think before you run a business, it's like, oh, they're so lucky working together, blah, blah, blah. And I just think, you know, there's so much that goes into making that work. Do you know what I mean? And like, yeah, and it's, a real, it's being really proactive and kind of conscious about putting the work in, I suppose. How have your relationships with those around you evolved since launching a business, especially given that you and Billy met on this incubator course and now are running a business, spending all this time talking, working together and best friends as well? <laughs> I guess, how have your wider circle responded to that? And have you seen any relationships evolve for the better or worse as you've become busier, more successful, et cetera, et cetera? Yeah, I think... 100% they've evolved. And I think I'd actually be concerned if they didn't evolve because to me, the bigger question would be if my relationships aren't evolving, then I'm not evolving. Mm. So I think inevitably there's ones that have been cut. Mm. And I think a big learning for me was very early on. And I'd say similarly for Billy, our full selves are our company. And that is through and through our, our priority. 
and again, we'd have very different approaches of how we navigate our health and our well-being around that, how we navigate our relationships around that. But the common thread is company comes first. That being said, we are the company. So I think that's where health and well-being come in, because if we're not taking care of ourselves, then there is no company. Of course. But from a relationship perspective, one of the biggest learnings I had, and I actually did this in like a really, for lack of a better word, cutthroat way is I literally sat down and basically mapped out my core relationships or not even core relationships, the people in my life that I spent time with. And I I basically put them in columns of like, they give me energy and they take energy. And anyone who came into the energy drain column, unless they also gave me energy back, basically got cut out or got the amount of time that I spent on those relationships dwindled. And then I'd say the time got reprioritized to the people who give me energy and Mm -hmm. very much focusing on protecting and nurturing and cultivating that energy because really when your focus is your business, that energy gets spent so quickly. I think also that being said, the relationships that I did prioritize, they've also suffered. You know, I think if you were to chat with my best friends or you were to chat with my family, a lot of them would say on one hand, it's been amazing seeing the growth and seeing, yeah, my own kind of evolution alongside of it. But it's also meant for them not seeing me as much. It's meant having to listen to me talk about product ideas that they're probably not really that interested in hearing about. And it's meant having to like very intentionally schedule time in the calendar with them, which historically it would have been much more like spontaneous and ad hoc. Whereas now it's like, cool, let's get this in. You know, I'm going to value your time. You need to value mine. Let's make time for it. So I think those relationships have suffered in that they don't necessarily get as much quantity of time. But where I would say they've really improved is that quality of time is so much more because I really value it. Yeah, of course. And I really value the time they're giving me as well. And because I also know that just as they give me energy, I want to make sure that I'm giving it to them too. So I would say the quality of the time spent or the like connections that I have with those relationships has gone up. You just have to be pretty patient to put up with co-founders and and business owners because all they do is talk about work. They're always working. I know, we're a pain. (laughs) (laughs) You have to really love them to be able to stick through that. And then I think, you know, same goes with romantic relationships. Yeah. I've been both single and in long-term relationships throughout the journey. And Bill's has been in one long-term relationship for most of it. And I'd say our long-term partners during this have definitely had their frustrations with us. And I think that's where it's great because they can hold us accountable, but we also need to hold ourselves accountable to say, these are my needs. This is the type of partner I'm going to be. And you know, you're kind of on board with that or you're not. But again, that comes back to the contracting and the communication around very clearly saying like, what are the needs, whether that's romantic or platonic, really? What do you need from me? What do I need from you? What can I give? What can't I give? And what are the expectations? And, and then how do I make sure that I'm delivering on that? Yeah. Dating when you've got a business as a woman in general can be interesting, but given the nature of what Furley is, how did that go down? Do you know, it was a really powerful filtering mechanism. (laughs) Yeah, I bet. (laughs) (laughs) And I would say in the kind of like early stages of singledom when working on the business, you could almost start to like map the camps of people that would gravitate towards me (laughs) or that would have like reactions to what we do. So one group of people would be like, uh, she must be really sex positive. She must be super kinky and like really freaky and like <laughs> really wild and all this, these kind of like romanticized ideal of like the sexually empowered woman. Yeah. And so I think some of the time with those, there's a couple of instances where I found myself in like situations where, and it was actually good because without Furley and the work that we would have done, I think I would have kind of gone through with things, you know, 
consented to things that like I just wasn't really interested in or wasn't really feeling because I would have felt like oh I probably should or you know like it's not Mm -hmm. that big of a deal or like I'm kind of obligated to I don't want to be a tease and I think interestingly growing into my kind of sexual power it was more a feeling of like actually I'm just not really feeling this and that's okay and as soon as I feel like that disconnect from my body or I feel like a lack of presentness or as soon as I start even thinking like "Mm, not so sure then for me it's it's a no it's that whole thing of like if it's not a fuck yes it's a no yeah and so I think that was really interesting because with that kind of like cohort if you would of dating it was actually much more of a reflection on yeah, feeling that I was really growing into being a sexually empowered woman mm. and comfortable to setting boundaries in terms and, and saying yes and saying no or saying I'm not sure yet. Then the other kind of group of men or like cohort number two were actually really uncomfortable with what I did. So it was a lot of sense of like, are you evaluating me? Are you psychoanalyzing me? Are you like imposing the research you're doing around like healthy relationships, healthy sex, pleasure, communication? Are you then imposing that on me? Do I need to like live up to this dream partner or ideal partner that you guys are talking about when you're talking about healthy relationships? And I felt like my work ended up actually, they almost projected their own insecurities back onto me because of the work I did. So that was an interesting group because in that one, I often felt guilty or I felt like I had to hide my work or that I couldn't bring like, because a lot of my work is around research, really interesting conversations around like toxic masculinity and porn or around pleasure and how orgasms often treated as a goal to sex. And actually sex should be so much more than that. And also our definition of sex is really narrow. Like it's often seen through a heterosexual lens that's about penetration and actually That's not what sex means to me. And, you know, these kind of conversations, when I bring them to those partners, there was a guard or there was a shutdown. And I used to feel like that was because of me. And I think the interesting thing in retrospect was actually that was because their own shame and their own discomfort with the topic and their own difficulties that they either were navigating or weren't quite ready to navigate. And then I would say the third cohort. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like, Anna, you need to write a book. Those that I've actually been talking about, like next step might be writing a book and just like... Absolutely. The, like the musings of the sex scientists. <laughs> yeah, the third group was the ones that have been like the phenomenal partners. And these are the ones I would say, you know, Billy's partner fits into this. And, you know, my long-term relationships fit into this as well. Is the people who just are 100% behind you and absolutely get what you do. And I think they support it. And not only do they support it, I think part of that is what actually they find attractive. You know, it's the passion, it's the purpose. It's the absolute commitment to a mission. And I think that actually becomes almost like a momentum in the relationship. And yeah, definitely it can take tolls on the relationships again, Mm -hmm. because working long hours or distracted or your mind doesn't necessarily switch off. And I think for me, especially like, for example, with sexting, because some of my time is spent reviewing sensual stories. I found like, you know, when partners would try and sext me, it would feel like work because in my mind, I'd be like, oh, interesting. You're using that language. Like, <laughs> oh, like, you know, and so I think, but, but that's on me. That's not on the partners. That's on yeah. me in, in learning what tools I need to have to be able to switch off and be present and like come back to those relationships. And I think that's definitely something both Billy and I have struggled with, with long-term relationships. But that group of partners have been the ones that are like, they absolutely just make us fuller versions of ourselves and yeah. they support, they empower, they're behind us. And so I think, yeah, going back to the original question of like this topic and dating, it's actually been really helpful because it creates a filter immediately that just kind of like cuts through the relationships that aren't going to serve me and allows me to really get down to the relationships that will. And I would say the same thing for Billy. 
absolutely love that and I just want to be a fly on the wall in those conversations I just feel like you'd handle them so well I mean we've kind of gone off on a bit of a tangent but in general because the main focus with this is the kind of challenges on route we've obviously spoke briefly before the mics went on about COVID and just the kind of impact of this year can you pinpoint worst day on the job so far the biggest challenge you've had to face and I suppose how you went about overcoming it or if you're in the process of how you are overcoming it or going about doing so yeah I mean I think actually I don't think I could say there's a single worst day on the job I think there's been some worst phases on the job and interestingly and this is again like testament to the complementarity of the relationship Billy and I tend to actually naturally ebb and flow between going in and out of these phases so typically if I'm in more of a slump she kind of naturally takes over and is on a high. And then when she goes into a slump, I naturally take over and I'm on a high. Mm. So I would say where the biggest, toughest days on the job, so to speak, are when we're both in our slumps. We have to then both pull ourselves and one another out of it. And I think that's when there's the biggest challenges. And I definitely think for us, that's come around periods of transition. So coming to the US or letting go and hiring new team members or our relationships outside of work and how that influences our well-being, thus how that influences our ability to show up at work, mm. burnout, like things like that. And so I think specifically for me, very early on when we started, and this just goes to show again, trust was built very, very from the get-go. So I actually had a mental health breakdown just as we were kind of kicking off. And there was you know, several reasons for that. Part of that was around trying to finish a PhD and I mentioned having not great experiences with that. So my supervisor basically wasn't in the picture. So I was doing that on my own, mm. self-funding it. So student loans and debt, trying to cover that. One of my best friends was killed in a selling accident. And then it was starting the company all within a period of about three months. And then I'd also just moved to London. So none of my community was there. And I think that was... Definitely in terms of the lowest phase, probably not just on the job, but I would say in my life. Yeah. And it was also terrifying because I was at a point where it was like so claustrophobic with my own self that I didn't know how to even get a foundation in place to then start to doing the bits around self-care. You know, and so that was like a combination of anxiety, a combination of depression. I started having panic attacks, which I'd never had in my life before, and very much became terrified of my own self. And so I think the kind of moving through that, and Billy was phenomenally helpful and supportive in that. But on the flip side, that's also not her responsibility. It's not on her to help me get better. Like that's on me. And then, you know, in, in this case, my family and friends supported that hugely as well too. But I think what was phenomenal was that there is never a question of once I get through that, being able to come back to work. So it was never a question of like, going on without me. And even though, you know, there was a few advisors that approached her and said, you know, mental health is kind of wavering at the moment, we can help you take this business on without her. And for her, that was like, that's absolutely a non-negotiable, like that's not even yeah. on the table. And so I think having that, that trust in place, and then having that broader support in place, and then doing the own self work to come out of that was so critical. And I think hugely influenced the belief we have in one another and what we're doing. And mm -hmm. I would say like a sense of respect and loyalty and understanding for one another. And then I'd say nothing quite as severe as that, but there's definitely been fluctuations where Bills has had to navigate some of her own lows as well. And I think it's meant just really using empathy to understand that and being very preventative. Again, health and well-being sits so through and through everything we do. So making sure that we're doing all of the things 
both individually and as partners to one another to prioritize that because if we go the company goes yeah absolutely the lowest days I would say we have or the lowest phases have come from when we haven't been checking in with ourselves and we haven't been prioritizing our health mm. Just everything you're saying that I'm just thinking it's really interesting, isn't it? In those lows, and I think a period like that has been echoed in a couple of interviews. It's really interesting how, when you're in those moments and you can't see the fog from the trees, you feel like, How am I going to get through this? And then, actually, in hindsight, once you are through, just how much stronger you are because you've made it through, if that makes sense. And, like, like you said, with your relationship and just your relationship, not just with Billy, but with yourself, knowing that you've gone through that is incredible right it's also about the mindset when i came through it and i think i've always had a mindset of problem solving which arguably my therapist would say is sometimes not always helpful but (laughs) sometimes you just need to sit with the problem you don't need to try and solve it yeah (laughs) hence mindfulness and covid comes into that as well like what's been really interesting is seeing how i as individuals seeing how like we as a company seeing how friends family you know folks all kind of respond to it and what i've started to notice is that there's almost like two camps you can either sit there and say things are happening to me or you can say things are going to happen but i control how i respond to them yeah and i think what's been really phenomenal like both coming out of the mental health stuff that i've experienced and i know bill's with depression that she experienced and COVID as well it's been like let's take a pause and let's reevaluate and let's actually really ask ourselves the hard questions the questions that normally we'd be terrified of actually asking or knowing the answers to and let's let's be okay with that and let's actually look at our full selves the sides of us that are scared, the sides of us that are confused, the sides of us that are angry, the sides of us that are sad. And let's, rather than try and like fix those or resist those, just accept them and and see ourselves as these much fuller versions of who we are and use that as an opportunity to flip things to be opportunities. So, you know, with COVID, lots of hiccups came up with our company. We were supposed to be moving to the US. We didn't. Fundraising had to be put on pause. We had to basically make a runway extend for 12 to 18 months, even though we'd been planning on fundraising two months in. We were in the middle of hiring a team. Our relationship itself kind of got spread across literally different countries all around the world. And it was a thing of saying, cool, you know, we could essentially be in limbo indefinitely with this, or we could say, great, this is for us just to really evaluate our priorities, to really evaluate our relationships, to really evaluate our mission. And how do we then take this as an opportunity to evolve, to get creative, to see loopholes to it, and to just like really flip the script? Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's been interesting because I think both Billy and I have that mindset, but as cliche as it sounds like, I would say we don't really do barriers. Like we don't really do obstacles. It's very much like, how do we solve it? How do we flip it? How do we get through it? How do we make this an opportunity? And sometimes that takes a toll. Other times it doesn't, but it's always looking for the glass half full. Absolutely. I mean, going forward then in terms of reevaluating that mission, where do you see Furley going? And is this end game for you? Can you see yourself doing anything else? What does the future look like? Is an interesting one. So I think actually where we had to reevaluate was when we kind of came into this, there was this question of like, are we more almost entertainment company or are we more education company or are we more a health company and where do we fit? And the reevaluating definitely came from going back again to the problem and the core mission. And for us, that is supporting women and folks with fathers to have healthier, pleasurable and more confident sex. And entertainment company, cool, but that doesn't really allow us to tackle that mission. 
education it does but also education kind of comes with like a preconceived idea of what sex ed should look like and we don't really fit in that box so it very much was like our mission is definitely much more around the therapy and the coaching space and and really not shying away from that and really owning that and i think the kind of idea of putting sexual well-being on par with physical well-being and mental well-being and seeing it as important as physical and mental health and i think also more broadly it's been really for us the idea around sexual inequality is actually a question of gender equality and a question of broader global equality so for us sexual well-being and tackling things like the pleasure gap tackling things like sexual assault and violence tackling things like assertiveness self-esteem self-confidence all of those are critical to a broader question around individual empowerment and empowering women and folks with fathers to then actually pursue true global equality so i'd say that's really allowed us to focus on it in a kind of more applicable way first that means you know within the 12 months definitely focusing on that stream and and we're really really determined <laughs> and ambitious to become the first evidence based digital therapeutic for women with sexual difficulties both in the US and the UK and then i think extending beyond that the further vision is thinking about communities that don't necessarily identify as women aren't necessarily folks with fathers thinking about how we expand that across gender sexual orientations ages religions cultures races all of that to make sure that it is very much around true sexual equality wow and i'm honestly in awe of you <laughs> and i just feel like this chat just tells me that you and Billy are going to do absolutely that so thank you. thank you so much i end all of these with a few statements so i will start the sentence and i'd like you to finish please so number 1 being my own boss means oh being my own boss means i would say believing in myself actually really believing in myself and surrounding myself with others who believe in me too absolutely when it's not quite going to plan my advice would be to i think yeah no it's okay you'll get through and we always do and i think yeah going back to that thing around make a decision right or wrong it doesn't matter a wrong decision you can learn from but no decision just leaves you stuck so yeah make a decision absolutely if i could describe myself as a businesswoman i'd say that i am a businesswoman <laughs> i think that's it i think if i had to describe myself as a businesswoman i'd say that i am and i think actually giving myself permission to say that i am is the kind of powerful thing in and of itself it was this thing of like going back to the imposter syndrome and being nervous about that or kind of this thing of like when do i get to say that i'm a businesswoman you know is that having an idea is that getting funding is that incorporating is that having a product launching a product having a user having a customer and i think just being able to decide that i'm defining myself as one on my terms and not anyone else's is the kind of power for me in and of itself genuinely best answer to that ever um, <laughs> i mean that's just a sound bite in itself i love that and if i could go back to day one of my business i'd tell myself oh if i could go back to day one of my business i'd tell myself probably don't be afraid of doing it because you already are mm. or don't overcomplicate it so don't worry about you know the bells and the whistles don't worry about the investors don't worry about the competitors focus on that one user or community member or what not and really getting to live and breathe their world and their problem and solving their pain love that and very lastly you've kind of already answered it but i'm going to say it anyway i want my legacy to be that that's one question i want my legacy to be I would say I want my legacy to be that Billy and I have created a future where every person is living a life that is healthy, confident and pleasurable and where we've achieved true gender equality. 
Amazing. Thank you so much. I know how busy you are. So um, I love that chat so much. So thank you. And I have no doubt listeners are going to just take a lot from that. So amazing. Thank you so much, Anna. Amazing. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you so much for listening to that episode. If you have a minute to spare and enjoyed it, of course, it would mean so much to me if you could please rate the podcast below or leave a review if you fancy being extra kind, as apparently it helps to give the series a little boost and helps other female founders and aspiring business owners to find it. For now, though, enjoy the rest of your day and please do look out for next week's episode. (music) 